Well, I can't wait to meet our host. I hear this is only one of his beat parties. Stay positive, the love will come back to me. Stay positive, the love will come back to me. Stay positive, the love will come back to me. Stay positive, the love will come back to me. Hello, good evening. It is not quite midnight, Friday, February. Uh, you can guess the date. It doesn't really matter, does it? We are going to take a look at a classic movie tonight. A movie full of huge names. Leslie Nielsen, Peter Graves, Lloyd Bridges, Robert Stack. Classic actors from the late 50s and all through the 60s. What movie could I be talking about? Well, if you know me, I'm not talking about a serious movie. Oh, by the way, this is Harry Day with Too True to Lie. I'm not drinking the typical, I'm looking at it like it's gonna tell me what it is and I, <laughs> I can't. Uh, I'm drinking unsweet tea and lemonade. I'm not drinking my Arizona green tea, which they won't send me. There's the evidence. Let me take a sip so we can kick off this uh, Pop-Tart stand or whatever it is. We are talking about Airplane, the movie. Classic comedy. Rated number one, number two, number six funniest movies in the world of all time. It was an original. It was a first. Three writers named David and Jerry Zucker and Jim Abrams were working with the Kentucky Fried Theater in Los Angeles. They, ended, they wrote this screenplay and no one wanted it because they didn't understand it, talking about airplane. So they wrote a... Uh, short movie of short scenes called the Kentucky Fried Movie, which in the mid-70s became a hit, almost a cult hit. And so they decided to push the airplane script again. And nobody wanted it. No one understood it. Uh... Looking back now, we know that it was a complete original that started off a whole comedic genre of film and television. But finally, Paramount Pictures picked it up and said, we like where this is going, work with our scriptwriter. And they didn't want to do it. They wanted to do it their way. They learned all about making movies when they did uh, Kentucky Fried Movie on the, on the set. And they knew if they wanted it to be the way they wanted it to be, they had to direct it themselves. Well, they agreed to work with the writer. And they streamlined the film. And they liked it. They said it, it worked. It helped. It made it better. 
Now this is a deadpan, burlesque, obscure movie full of puns and gags, slapstick, that took three and a half million dollars to make in the fall of 79, I think. And I don't know if it's up till now or at what point it grossed, but it grossed $158 million worldwide. A critical and financial success, right? Right. The writers, Zucker, Abrams, and Zucker, also known as Zaz, as I will refer to them, coming here forward, won a Writers Guild of America Best, Best Adapted Comedy Award. They were nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Picture, Musical, or Comedy, and for a BAFTA for Best Screenplay. I think BAFTA is British. Anyway, what was it? One, one group either in the United Kingdom or somewhere said it was the second greatest comedy next to The Life of Brian by Monty Python, which is a hilarious movie. But this was a movie all its own. It was... Well, see, what, what the Zucker brothers and Abrams would do while doing their sketches for Kentucky Fried Theater is they would tape nightly shows... And then they would review them, but mostly they would pay attention to the shows for stuff that they could gag off of, but mostly they were into the commercials. And when they originally wrote Airplane, they used their commercial gags sprinkled all through it, but later they were taken out to where it was just a streamlined movie following the plot. Filled with gags everywhere. You know, you would think that it was probably a full-on uh, inspiration to the creators of Family Guy, where they just jump from a scene to a, you know, a throwback. What would you call it? To, to what's a throwback in there? Blah 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 blah. blah. I can't think of it. Maybe if I sniff sniff some magic marker, I'll think of it. Ah, uh, callback, throwback, a fallback, a flashback. Ah. Anyway. So I'm not going to get into the plot. I'm not going to get into many more actors, but I will get into the ones that you're like, whoa. That's right, they were in that. So you have Robert Hayes. He wasn't in a lot of other stuff as the main character. Julie Haggerty had some success throughout the 70s and the 80s. Leslie Nielsen, comedy legend, although this was his first comedy, he was known to have a sense of humor and play pranks in between takes in all the movies he used to go to. And he was notorious for having a handheld fart machine that he would use like breathing air. I mean, he was constantly using his fart machine and embarrassing women and just not embarrassing himself. 
having fun with it. So you had Peter Graves, who was from a lot of Westerns and serious movies. Lloyd Bridges, same. Robert Stack. I, I remember him in war movies. I don't remember other things he was in. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was in it. He did not want to do the movie. He thought it was the stupidest thing he'd ever read, like most of these other actors I just said. But he was a big-time collector of Persian rugs. And somehow he was, I wouldn't say duped, but he was like bribed into doing his role for this really nice Persian rug. He's, they were like, you can have this rug if you'll just do the bit in the movie. And so he did it. Um, Barbara Billingsley was a woman on the plane. She was Beaver, leave it to Beaver's mama. Um, I'm looking at Ethel Merman had a very short role in this. Jimmy Walker, Dynamite. Jimmy Walker was the windshield wiper man who was, who was doing the windshield wipers on the front of the plane before they took off, and then he put the hood down and fell. Uh, which is a gag on... I mean, they gagged everything. Every every other five seconds was a gag. Where is... What's his name? There's the Jive Dudes. They made up their own language to get the part as the Jive talking brothers on the plane and I don't know whether I mean brothers as black men or maybe they were brothers they weren't real brothers oh Stephen Stucker was was Jacobs is that right Jacobs the ones that was so zany they would go to him there was no ad-libbing in this movie by the way it was script written and followed except for the goofy guy in the tower who said Leon's getting larger and unplugged the lights and made a brooch or a pterodactyl. I guess that's Steven Stucker. Johnny Henshaw Jacobs. What do you make of this, Johnny? That sounds right. They allowed him to ad-lib. They'd ask him what he thought his character would say because apparently he was great at it. At, at just coming up with stuff off the cuff. Never saw him in anything before or after. Sure, certainly he did something, but I don't know what it is. So we got our cast. You know, the, the movie was made. Zero Hour was a 1957 movie. I want to say it was one of the first uh, airport-style movies written by the same guy. I want to say Dean Martin was the pilot. Seemed like everyone, it was a serious movie. Seemed like everyone was having an affair. It was like a soap opera movie in the sky. And pretty much the script followed it pretty good. Um, minus the gags. But Zaz, Zucker, Abram Zucker, 
realize that their script followed the movie Zero Hour exclamation point, just like it's airplane exclamation point. They realize it followed the movie so closely, so remarkably similar, even though they were full on slapstick comedy, that they should probably obtain the rights of the movie Zero Hour to protect themselves. And for only $2,500, they paid Warner Brothers for the rights to play off of that movie. Well, at the time, they still couldn't sell it. Did John Landis end up directing that movie? Let's go up here. Direct, produce, John, direct. Nope, the Zuckers, Zaz did it. Zaz did it. John Landis was the one that was pushing them to do the movie and the script and the movie. And Howard Koch was uh, the the production company. Was the only guy in Paramount who would touch it. Because like I said, it was brand new. No one had ever made a movie like this. (laughs) You know, the the cat... (laughs) Peter Graves read the script and threw it across the room and said it was garbage and it was tasteless. And he said... He said... uh, They they still got him in to do a screen test and talk. And and he didn't understand why he was saying what he was saying to the little boy in the front of the plane. Such as, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Well, Zaz told him, well, it'll be explained later in the movie in a part that you're not in. Which means they lied to him. And then in the DVD commentary, Abrams mocked i don't understand what did he think was tasteless about pedophilia well these days it's going to come out in the news that pedophilia worldwide has been do has been an organized serious evil organization that's that's being brought down right now as far as the underground news goes whether it makes the major news or not, I don't know. No one trusts the major news anymore. They're in the bag for special interest, just like everybody else in politics. So back to the whoopee cushion. They said he, they said Nielsen had a whoopee cushion, but I've seen him with a fart machine. Either way, uh, Robert Hayes says he played that thing like a maestro. And... For the doctor who Nielsen played, Zaz tried to get Donda Louise and Jack Webb and Christopher Lee, of all people. And Christopher Lee later remarked that he made a huge mistake turning that down. He wouldn't be the only one. Um, of the big names Stack, Nielsen, Graves, and Bridges, for some reason, Zaz felt that Robert Stack's character was the most important linchpin, quote-unquote, of the film's plot. I guess because he was the guy talk, on the ground talking the plane down or whatever. He was extremely serious. And there was a com- comedian at the time named John Biner in L.A. who did an impression of Robert Stack. And they took him down there 
Zaz took Robert down there to see Biner <laughs> impersonate Robert Stack because that's how they wanted him to be, not Robert Stack, Robert Stack, because he wasn't quite doing it on, on film for them. And so basically they wanted Stack, quote, doing an impression of John Biner, doing an impression of Stack. And he did it. Now, as far as Lloyd Bridges, his kids, who are both big actors, especially the uh, Jeff Bridges, there's Bo Bridges and Jeff Bridges, they, they talked Lloyd into doing it. They thought, of course, they were of age to enjoy the late, late 60s, early 70s as, as young men. And so they got it and they talked their dad into doing the script. Leslie Nielsen was all for it. He wanted to get into comedy. Another big name that tried to get the role as Ted Stryker that Robert Hayes ended up getting, who was not really a well-known actor at the time, who was working on daytime TV or something, some show. David Letterman tried to get the role, but he just wasn't very uh, exuberant. And so he didn't get it. Like he tried to get it, but he didn't try real hard. Bruce Jenner, back then, read for the part. But they decided to get Robert Hayes. As for Elaine, the main female part, Sigourney Weaver auditioned, Shelley Long auditioned, but they got Julie Haggerty, and she had never been in a movie. She had just been on stage. Small theater, small, small, small theater. Um, but when she came in and read, she was perfect. And, you know, being two fairly unknowns, Zaz told them, you know, you need to play your role straight, just like everybody else in the movie. And when they shot the bar scene, Hayes and Haggerty developed chemistry that just sizzled. It worked in the in the film's favor. And they, they developed it when spending time perfecting the bar dance routine to the BG Staying Alive, which I may use as the outro here. It'll have a little bit of background sound because that's what I seem to have downloaded and saved was staying alive with the movie you know the the girl scouts fighting and the dance sounds and the dude getting stabbed in the back and i can all you can do is see haggerty dancing like she's stabbed pointing out her back stabbed because the other guy is and she doesn't know and she's smiling it's it works it's such a hilarious movie that's why we're talking about it another fantastic little tidbit that we did not know and this is amazing to me. In the beginning of the movie, you had the red zone, white zone, curbside terminal announcers. It was Betty and Vernon arguing over the red and white zones, over the PA. Well, Zaz tried to get some professional voice actors, but didn't like any of them. And they ended up hiring the actual 
voice actors for the announcement tapes from the Los Angeles International Airport. I guess that'd be LAX. It's a giant horseshoe. That's kind of neat. And they were a married couple of that. And so their dialogue back and forth, I don't know if they really live like that. But it it worked. Everything in that movie, everything in the movie worked. That's why it's such a timeless classic. Zaz lifted a lot of dialogue directly from Airport, which was written by Arthur Haley, who wrote Zero Hours Strip. It was 10 years apart. Um, apparently, Haley got a kick out of it. No, the couple got a kick out of it. I thought it was funny when they saw the movie. Elmer Bernstein did the music. He had done movies like The Great Escape and The Magnificent Seven. What am I missing here? What am I missing? I know I'm missing something. Always. Bernstein. Bernstein. No... No, I'm just making noises to let you know I'm still here while I'm trying to find something worth talking about. Hmm. Well, I can go to this other thing then. Let's do this. The, a lot of the actors got together, the ones still living. In what, 2000? Uh, whatever. Because Nielsen was still alive and he had his fart machine. So. Here's the thing about Jabbar. He wasn't enthusiastic about it at all, but he collected Oriental rugs, and his manager apparently said, if you want this rug, you're going to have to do this movie. And so he did it. So it was his uh, manager or his agent that, that fixed that. Um, another woman named Mrs. Joyce Boulefant, who played Mrs. Davis, I'm not sure who that is, quote, I just read the dumbest script in the world. She said to her husband, people are coming down the baggage claim instead of the bags. Why, why do they think that's funny? But then my husband said, you're an actress, you act, and so she did it. That's pretty funny. The little girl who was uh, had the IV in the uh, audition, she was told to make a funny face. She did the fish lips, and that's what she did in the movie, and got her the part. Um, Peter Graves told me he read the script threw it, this is Robert Stack threw it across the room and said it was the lousiest piece of junk he'd ever read Peter was disgusted but his agent and daughter said take another look well Lloyd Bridges was like what are we doing and Robert Stack who got 
who got it immediately, how it was funny, said, come on, Lloyd, they just want us to be us. And so they got into it. They really they got into it and enjoyed it. And uh, Lloyd Bridges made more movies. You know, the uh, not the Top Gun movies, the, uh, the, one, the ones that spoof it. Hot Shots. He was in the Hot Shot movies. It was good. Let's see. Let's see. The Fart Machine. Oh, one one day in, in between shots. Uh, what's his name? Leslie Nielsen was on an elevator with a whole bunch of Asian tourists. And he let his little fart machine rip. And at the very next floor, they fled. <laughs> he did it next to Julie Haggerty and said, Julie! And she was embarrassed. Um, one of the Zuckers notes that Peter Graves was sitting behind him at the premiere in the theater and he was laughing out loud harder than anyone there. He just found it hilarious. They struck gold. Um, you know, some said this is going to be a disaster. And this was while the screening was about to begin. They're like, oh God, this is going to be embarrassing and a disaster. But people were literally rolling in the aisles, they say. So the airplane. The Zaz wanted to use... What time am I looking at here? I don't need to be on here all night. Zaz was looking to use a, a propellered passenger plane. I say that four times. And uh, Paramount was like, no, you're going to use a jet. We need to make it modern. And they're like, no, we really, we really see, see it as a, as a twin prop uh, plane thing. And they also wanted to shoot it in black and white. Well, they didn't get either. They, they got a jet that looked exactly like a TWA uh, 707, except they changed the lettering. They used a real one that was painted for the exterior scenes. Um, the model was a model. But Zaz did get to use propeller sounds for the jet when the jet was flying. Whether they were interior and it was muffled or exterior. And you saw a jet, but you heard twin propellers and that was that was, that's what Zaz wanted they uh they were not going to completely cave which one of these I look at first I may have a few more little things a few more little things zero hour David Letterman oh the Siamese twins who worked in the airport in the tower were the Zucker brothers lawyers and they uh, put them in a single shirt and made them look like Siamese twins I don't know if that was in any of the previous movies or not there's not much to this page two things about the propeller well yeah 
So we, we could close on that as far as our uh, information yanked from the computer here. A little, oh, it was accepted into the Library of Congress. And the reason why is just like, huh? I'm not gonna be able to find it because that happens every time I wanna find something. I can't find it. Oh, can't find it. But it did make it into the Library of Congress as a film that there were like three, three, like cultural. It was, it was like, what am I reading? Library of Congress is not on here, man. I just read it. Well, here's here's what it's quoted for the Library of Congress. If that makes any sense. Man, I swear I just read that. Sorry, guys and gals. Quote, airplane emerged in 1980 as a sharply perceptive parody of the budget big budget disaster film that dominated Hollywood during the 1970s and introduced a much needed deflating assessment of the tendency of theatrical film producers to push successful formulaic movie conventions beyond the point of logic. Whew. Apparently that's, that's part of its description in the Library of Congress. Basically accepting ridiculous comedy. Which it is. But, it, gosh. It's one of those movies that you just... You can't not watch. Unless you don't have a sense of humor. Oh, 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 it's at the damn top. In 2010, the film was selected for preservation, preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being, quote, culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. <laughs> oh, I bet Zaz, I bet the guys just thought that was the, if any of them are alive in 2010, that was the most hilarious thing they'd ever heard. They were just straight up sense of humor people who ran a comedy troupe in 1971. Yeah, flying high. Oh, that was what it was. <laughs> it was alternative, not airplane exclamation point was alternatively titled flying high exclamation point. And I saw flying high. I'm thinking, why the hell is that there? Why does it redirect to airplane? That was one of the original uh, possible titles. Airplane works, though. I mean, it goes with airport, the movie. It's airplane, the movie. You know, remember they had the Jaws? It was right after Jaws 2 came out, I guess. Jaws was huge from the mid-70s until. It just it just charged on, chewing up uh, profit. If, does that mean making profit? That's what I'm trying to say. But they, the, the tail fin of the plane going through the clouds was all about Jaws. 
Um, I don't know what the blow up uh, automatic pilot. I don't know what that came from. They might have just made that up. Hilarious. Hilarious film. Deadpan comedy. But that's Airplane the Movie, guys and gals. If you uh, have never seen it, you should watch it. Um, might help to have a few drinks or smoke a joint. Might not. I've, wa I've watched it in all three states, drinking or after a joint or sober. I'm in my sober mode, have been for a while. Um, I often don't feel like it, but I still have my uh, reaction times and capabilities and my imagination. I, that's what I probably thought I would lose. I, I quit. I didn't start drinking until... Really, I drank a little bit in high school, not much. I can think of a, only a handful of times I might, I got drunk, and I know of one, and I was still, I was across the lake, and I was driving a boat home, so it's not like I was drinking and driving. I was drinking and boating. But in college, I really started drinking because I got in a fraternity, and they were, and another movie that I should do is Animal House if I hadn't already. But our, our fraternity off campus at Mississippi State was considered, and not by us, we just lived it. We were considered the animal house. We, we were loved and wild and ridiculous, mainly ridiculous. Um, drank through college, drank post-college, let's see, for a few years, Locally, then I moved to South Carolina. I drank there, but I was really getting into smoking marijuana by then. And then I just I slowly just quit drinking until by, you know, about 2000, I quit drinking a lot. By 2002, I, I wasn't even drinking. It's like I didn't even miss it. People were like, oh, are you, are you sober? I'm like, am I sober? Yeah, I'm sober. You, you want me to drive? What do you, what do you mean? No, are you sober? Like, do you go to AA? I'm like, no, I've never been to AA. They're like, well, why'd you quit drinking? I was like, I just did. I just, you know, headaches and hangovers suck. I don't want them. I don't need them. I'm saving money from not buying a bunch of drinks and alcohol. I'm not worried about drinking and driving. I just, I don't even miss it. I will take a shot of moonshine if someone has some. Or a shot of... Liquor. I'm not into beer. Maybe a small glass of wine or something. But it's all. It's always like an ounce or two. That's it. That's just uh, just for the palate. Just for the the flavor. You know, it, it used to get me into trouble. It turned me. It 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 made me very uninhibited. You might say. But then uh transitioned into the pothead years when I was in uh, on the beach in South Carolina. And that continued over to uh, California, where the marijuana got a lot better. I only lived there a year. I tore my knee up, moved home, kind of started cutting back by then. And I'd say about 2012... Ten years after I had completely quit drinking, I quit smoking marijuana. 
I don't think there's an MA, Marijuana Anonymous. But uh I was you know, I was I was really getting into um I'd already gone through painting and had gotten into uh metal sculpture, which is what I do. I'm in the Mississippi Craftsman's Guild for metal sculpture. I do shows here and there and sell them, I do welding work for people, whatever. Um, I like making stuff. I'm not on fire about it here lately. But what I'm happy about is that the the spark for creativity and and having an imagination and being creative and making things out of nothing, I still have. And I thought I found my direction, especially with writing, when I did all my writing, writing books, novels, uh, literary fiction novels, and I write these. I guess I need to go ahead and just say, if you want to look into all my different creations, harrymday.com has them. Uh, contact me on the contact page if anything interests you. Most of the pieces on there are sold. They're just representations. But, but you know, I would I would smoke some marijuana and, like, find, like, say you have all these, say you have all these doors in front of you, and you know which one, you know where they go. You have these paths, and you know where they go. It would like send me down the path I needed to go down, and I was afraid when I quit smoking marijuana that I would I would lose that. Well, it was always there. It's still here in me. I don't need any libation or inebriation or any of that stuff to be able to be creative and constructive. And. Uh, you know, who else can I thank but God for for having that implanted in me long ago, right? I've always seen seen things in other things. Like you stare at a wood grain and you start seeing shapes that look like, you know, boats or planes or faces. And I would be able to see them in ceilings and floors and carpet. I mean, anywhere I saw that kind of stuff. And I was as a kid. But, what are we looking at here? 38 minutes, I ought to cut it. I'm just uh, very thankful that I can still do that. And I'm thankful of y'all for listening around the world 11 times a day. I don't know how many people listen. The number keeps going up, you know. The 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 uh the numbers keep going up, which is interesting. So I hope you're enjoying my nonsense. And I hope that you're spreading the peace and the love and the unity and you're making that ripple touch people in a platonic <laughs> kind way to where they'll feel the friendliness and be friendly to the next person they see and then it just ripples out I say it every time I do one of these and I do it I practice it every day and I want y'all to do the same I challenge you so this is H-Day 
here in the Big Black River Studios of Madison County. And I wish all of you peace. I was afraid to approach her, but that night, fate was on my side. I'm not using-